Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you this week? Well, I still have a sense of what year it is and a general memory, so I'm doing a lot better than the humans in this story. Excellent stuff, and hopefully you haven't contracted some mildly inexplicable virus along the way as well. Well, this week we are going to be diving into the last story of Charlie Pollard and the Sixth Doctor. So we are going to be covering Blue Forgotten Planet, the final part of this Charlie's Departure trilogy. Uh, Yeah, so Kev, would you care to give us a summary? Sure. Blue Forgotten Planet has the Doctor and Mila, still disguised as Charlie, landing on Earth in the far future, where humanity, as they can see it, is just a few scattered camps. This one camp to land on, there is an encampment that is recording documentary footage for the Virens who provide them with vaccines to stave off a certain kind of madness. Meanwhile, humans outside the camp have gone a bit feral. Uh, The Doctor and Mila are separated, I'm just going to keep calling him merely, even that seems a little contradictory given what happens later. They are separated with the doctor, with the more feral humans. One of them manages to use some of the medicine that he stole to gain a bit more sense and explain the situation to the doctor. While Mila is with the uh, encampment humans when the virons descend with the real Charlotte Pollard. Charlie and like sort of the leadership from that encampment uh, and Mila all go up to the viron base. The doctor and the... When the other uh, the other human, uh, Ed, uh, follows suit. And on the Viren base, a lot of expedition is given about, and things are unravel. Essentially, the Virens detected that humanity was infected with this one virus with a small chance of activating. And because of that, need to either treat the humans, and now that they determine treatment is impossible, want to wipe humans out. After left negatively around, the doctor figures out that exposure to chronons from the TARDIS cures humans. But when his sort of experiment goes a bit awry, the only thing that can sort of save, save the lives of the people inside the TARDIS, him, Charlie, and Mila, is for Mila to sacrifice herself in order to stop it. Or did she? Or was it Charlie? I think that's a bit ambiguous, actually. In the end, the surviving Charlie implants false memories of the Doctor, living with a different version of Mila through all his past adventures with, quote, uh, with Charlie. And in order to preserve the web of time, and then leaves with the Virens, while the Doctor... Is, goes back on his way, thinking he just parted with the fake memory-implanted Mila. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, as I think is pretty clear from that summary, this is quite a, quite a convoluted story, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of moving parts. And for all that, I mean, we've been now talking about Charlie for years. So we have to get to, you know, her final wrap-up story and, and, and work out whether it actually gives her a, a suitable send-off. But let's kind of start at the beginning and, and, and get, the, get the preliminary stuff out of the way first. So um, how did you find this one? I... Yeah, I like it a lot, even though it's also quite a bit of a mess. Like you said, there's a lot of moving parts going on. I think Nicholas Briggs is a writer. That's sort of his tendency is to throw like a whole kitchen sink into his stories and just sort of let the stronger parts sort of rise to the top. And this has so many ideas going on. But it, in the end, it is good. Like I think what makes this better than, say, a Ninth Doctor Ravagers box set, whatever that was called, um, what makes this better is that there's a lot of emotion in the Sixth Doctor and Charlie's sort of situation. Sixth Doctor, Charlie, Mila, like all three of those characters are in like such a fraught place and Colin Baker and India Fisher are really giving it their all. And I think what also helps is the Virons are such an interesting villain as a villain, like just totally cold and programmatic. And as sort of more and more of the reveal just seems more and more cruel and inhumane, like they go from these sort of aloof, almost savior-like figures to just these real jerks. <laughs> trying, I was trying to think of what avoids the explicit rating there, but yeah, it's it really is like a nice little unraveling there. So even if not every element works or comes together neatly, I think there's so much here that is interesting, at least. Yeah, I mean, it's very much uh, a story that I think uh, hinges on the kind of emotional logic over kind of the the sort of plot logic. I think that's how I would kind of put it, because all the emotional stuff lands. Now, whether we want to talk about it now or sort of slightly further on in the podcast, um, one of the inevitable kind of side effects of having um, a, a whole plot, which... Um, 
works around this idea of Charlie having travelled with the Eighth Doctor, going back in time and then travelling with the Sixth Doctor, is there has to be an out for it. And there's only a very limited number of outs that you can have for it. So either she's erased from time or it's amnesia. Well, guess which one we got to start with? Yeah, yeah, great. False memories and, and implanted memories. Great. Yeah, my, my absolute favourite plot device. Mm. Not. Um, but I think the story kind of gets away with it. Well, I say, well, we'll maybe talk about that a wee bit later on. But um, again, the emotional logic of how that part of the finale plays out holds true. And um, I mean, across the whole of this play, I mean, just. I cannot praise Colin Baker and India Fisher highly enough. The, uh, Colin Baker is just like, even listening to this, even in the first couple of episodes when we're still kind of, you know, getting up to steam a wee bit, I just, sometimes just listening to him just takes my breath away how good he is as the Doctor. He's so good. He gets a couple of furious speeches here. That, op- that opening scene where it's just, just this incredible kind of sense of, sort of melancholy and loss um, as the Sixth Doctor kind of reminisces about uh, Mila um, having been, uh, you know, moved on from him and all this kind of stuff. He's got such range here. There's such a commitment to the role, huge amount of passion. I just, I just sometimes just listening to him, even if this isn't the best story he's ever done, it's still a bloody good one. Um, And he just has that, I don't know. It just—it's just a pleasure to listen to him sometimes, and this is absolutely true in this story. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating that the Doctor is so much a more passive, reactive figure in this story. I think the only thing he actively does is sort of the sort of flood the Earth with Chronons, reset it back, time me why me thing at the end of the story. But most of the time, and there is the great bit where he, where Charlie almost blows up the TARDIS, and he sort of slyly gives her instructions on how to stop it. But like, so there's a few clever things he does, but it is mostly just reacting. And that can be a very difficult position for an actor and a character to be in. But I think Colin Baker, like that's, that's why you have Colin Baker on your payroll. He is so good. I used to just bringing the fury and then sort of the heartbreak and the sort of confusion when things aren't going right or when he's like learning new stuff. And there's just so many scenes where he is just holding his own I also have the interrogation scene where it's him and I believe Driscoll uh, and he has to stop himself from asking questions. It just makes him angrier. <laughs> and so uh, that that's, there's just so many little fantastic moments that Colin Baker gets to just sink his teeth into. If nothing else, this is such a good showcase for him and like, and, and it needs to be such a showcase for him. And I will get to India Fisher in a bit, but this is their last story together. So you really want it to sort of show off, like their acting abilities. Well, yeah, and and it absolutely does. I mean, that again, those those final few moments between Charlie and Armila mm-hmm. and and the Sixth Doctor when he agrees to have like the memory implant mm-hmm. is just, you know, for, again for all that that's not my favorite plot device, but the actual acting in those scenes is just amazing. And and you know, I mean, so often when we review these plays it's like so it's always tempting to start using expressions like well you know he's never been better and Mm -hmm. kind of those sort of slightly kind of cliche ways of describing it but honestly i mean (laughs) i don't want to say he's never been better i would say he's been as good as this before and this is just brilliant this is as good as as i've said that this is as good as it gets that makes it sound almost pejorative i don't mean it that way at all he's absolutely phenomenal this is this is him at the top of his game absolutely making the sixth doctor all the things um that that character needs in order to kind of work the passion the emotion the depth the loss the melancholy all these things kind of colliding together and 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 colin baker is just brilliant at being able to um bring them all together i think it's a, um, also a better performance than than the one he gave in uh, paper cuts in the last story as well where oh, yeah. he was very good but i mean he just didn't have an awful lot of material to work with there there was you know there was it was a bit kind of flat and a bit kind of uh which well, appropriate for paper cuts i suppose um but you know that just the, it, the quality of the material wasn't as good as the quality of the material here and for all that we have that that kind of plot mess all the stuff around the doctor all the stuff around the way that the doctor would react to like that that speech he has about the you know when he's horrified because 
uh, he realizes that the the, the virons are going to wipe out the earth because there's one chance you know like twenty thousand generations or whatever it is from now uh that one human being might carry this amethyst virus or whatever and he's you know the fury and the anger and the moral righteousness that that he's able to do so well and it all just kind of floods out of him it's it's just glorious to listen to him when he's kind of in full flight like that and has material which is strong enough to kind of back up that kind of performance yeah i mean i guess we're back to your point about paper cuts i think colin baker is rarely at blame for a bad performance like he rarely ever gives a bad one and he is it's not usually his fault but that's he's such an asset when you have a great script for him he can just absolutely nail these more like melancholy moments these more dramatic moments i mean he's one of the best assets big finish has which is why he's like almost sort of the poster child for it just how this company can like take a doctor who is just very neglected on television and then turn him into like a fan favorite like this. And it just, it all shows like, this is just point, just the point example of how that works. He is just phenomenal. And it is, like you said, it's, it's up there with his best performances. I mean, who can, you can argue and it comes down to opinion of what is the actual best, but this is definitely on that sort of top shelf. He, I, I can't name right now like another performance that's better, only ones that are equal. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's that's pretty much the 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 bar that we're looking for here. And because he is, generally speaking, so consistently good when he's given this kind of quality of the material, it really it just does just just demonstrate, you know, how how great the sixth doctor is as well. Like we're talking a lot about Colin Baker, but like the sixth doctor is even like you say, he's he's maybe a little bit passive here from time to time um, until you know the sort of fourth episode where he gets to you know plug something into the console, um, and that's true to an extent. But there's so much going on with the Sixth Doctor, and again, sort of in that fourth episode, I kind of I really like the moment where he throws both of the Charlies out of the TARDIS mm-hmm. because he just does not have time to try and figure out which is the real one, which is the fake, which is the you know, and that kind of you know. I mean, in some ways, that's such a cliche. The, I'm the real one. No, I'm the real one. You know, um, we'll, we'll, when we get around to doing our Star Trek podcast, we'll be talking about this very thing. Um, <laughs> so this is something which has been going on for, you know, a long, long time. And it ought to be, it ought to, you know, normally when you have these things, it plays into that cliche is where you have two actors who are, uh, so one actor who's playing two characters and they, you know, oh, I'm the real one. No, I'm the real one. And it just, like, the, the sixth Doctor just completely short-circuits that and just throws them both out the TARDIS because he just does not have time for this nonsense right now. And that's lovely. That's such a that's such a sixth Doctor thing. Like, the fifth Doctor would never do that. The seventh Doctor would already know, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just like, the, the, that's it's one of those little moments, one of those little scenes that really requires... The Sixth Doctor. Like, maybe you could argue, like, maybe the Tenth, if he was in a strop, would do something like that. You know, maybe like the way he did with Adam in in uh, in uh, The Long Game. But, uh, sorry, sorry, the Ninth Doctor, rather. Um, but beyond that, I mean, this really it is one of those moments. Yeah, it just, it really it requires that Doctor, and that characterization, And it's really good. And, you know, that's the thing. that Like, the Doctor's right. He doesn't have time to deal with that right now. So let's put it out of the way and let's solve the immediate problem and then we can come back to this. Well, that's not quite how it plays out, of course, but it's just, it's such a nice character beat. And, and of course, Colin Baker plays it brilliantly. I think we've made that abundantly clear at this point. But, um, you know, he just has that magnificent little moment there. And there's lots of those little moments in this, in this play that just really understand how to dig into the character of the Sixth Doctor and make him both the Doctor, but also both uniquely the Sixth Doctor. And I think that's sort of one of the more underappreciated ways, like signs of a Doctor Who story being good and things that writer needs to keep on the writing Doctor Who is yeah, the story has to like depend on which Doctor you're writing it for. And if there are scenes of that there that can be tailored towards that Doctor's personality, that just makes all the difference in... I don't know, just making it stand out and feel much more special. And I think you're right. I mean, it's such a sixth Doctor characteristic, that sort of moment where he's like a little bit grumpier, but grumpy in a different way from the first or ninth Doctor who might do like similar things. It's 
it's just so uniquely in Colin Baker's performance in his characterization of the character and it works. And I think like Doctor Who in general just works better when you tailor it. Not you're not just writing a generic space fantasy story, but you're tailoring it for these characters in the situation. It's yeah, it it is just really fantastic. And I think Nicholas Briggs often sort of forgets that. I I don't I don't want to cite specific examples because we've been talking about the same stories we've already slagged on like earlier in this podcast. But <laughs> yeah, basically yes, uh, it can be. His writing can be very generic at times and it can frustrate me, but here he totally gets what makes a sixth doctor work as a character. And this is, this could only be a sixth doctor story. And even beyond just plot reasons, this could only be a Charlie story. Like if there was two, I don't know, roses or Leela's in that same position, it would be entirely different reactions with entirely different weight behind it. And like, obviously there's so much weight to Charlie that why, like this story isn't happening without this specific weird setup for this trilogy. But you understand what I mean. He writes Charlie so authentically yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly sort of moving on to Charlie now, um, I mean, once again, obviously, just initially, we have to praise India Fisher because she's mm -hmm. fantastic and she does an amazing job of playing uh, both Charlie and Mila. And, and she really just, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Never better. Um, but, you know, it is, it is always challenging when an actor is given that kind of uh that role where they need to do the same character in two slightly different ways and particularly on the um you know in audio as a medium you don't have the luxury of putting one of them in a different color jacket or you know yeah. some kind of some kind of you know easy visual shortcut or you know and and she does an amazing job of differentiating between the two characters um as the play goes on the differentiation between the two characters becomes less and less i assume extremely deliberately because i mean you mentioned the ambiguity earlier on but you know the whole point is that we actually don't know whether it was charlie that that um you know you know committed suicide in order to turn off the the, the disseminator or whether it was mila we don't know if it's charlie or mila that decides the sixth doctor should have these memories implanted we we just don't know it's left ambiguous now this is where big finish history always knackers things because we have obviously as we've mentioned before there is a charlie pollard or charlotte pollard box set so that kind of wipes out any real meaningful ambiguity now obviously that wasn't around when this was released obviously that's much much more recently and there is a tag scene in, at the end of the the fourth episode which kind of gives them that um that lead into the the charlotte uh, pollard box set that we will never be discussing um so it's a kind of a shame in a way that that box set exists because it, the fact it's it's not called Mila, uh, it's called Char Charlotte Pollard. So you know, yeah, that there goes your ambiguity. But if you just take this story in isolation, we don't really know whether it's Charlie or whether it's Mila, and because the performances of the two characters have become more and more similar, even when they're kind of arguing outside the TARDIS after the Doctor slung them out. You know, it, it just sounds like the same person at that point, whereas there has been little moments of differentiation prior to that. So I really, I think that's a really, that must be so difficult to do, but that's such a good performance for India Fisher that she's able to kind of narrow down that kind of change until they are the same character. So that, that plays into the ambiguity of whether it's Charlie or Mila that's left alive at the end of the story and we really don't know and again we have that sense that you know charlie as a character we know grows up over the course of this story she's been traveling with the the virons for a very long period of time um we get you know bits and pieces about how um mila has been traveling with the sixth doctor and the way that charlie knows that the sixth doctor trusts her because she gave her gave him a gave her a tardis key and all that kind of stuff it's all those again those nice little details that help to differentiate them but they also sort of collapse in in themselves um like some kind of recursive occlusion um until we're just left with a sing singular character at the end and we just don't know which one it is um and of course the doctor asks and is pointedly not given an answer or at least not a straightforward answer. We both were, I think, is the answer, mm -hmm. and and that seems that seems an, an eminently satisfying way of, of kind of squaring that circle. Yeah, and I completely agree. That's a great point about how the performances get more and more similar as the play goes on. 
But then there's also this great trick. And part of that is in the writing, just making sure we're like sort of reminded occasionally to some references certain Charlie's make of which one is which. But also, yet with Indifish's performance as well, I was never unclear which Charlie was talking at any given time, which is insane. Because <laughs> like I said, there's yeah, no yeah. visual clues. There is no <laughs> like other reference beyond the fact that one will occasionally say, like, oh, I'm from the I'm the one from the Virons, or I'm the one who's uh, captured by the Daleks, et cetera, et cetera. Like, like occasionally tip it off and like where they are on the plot at certain points in time, you can figure it out. But also just from a performance level, it's just insane. <laughs> just like everyone will start talking out instantly know which one it is. And it's such a good performance for India Fisher. Uh, I think that's almost why I'm sort of tipped off, I think, at the end that it is. Or maybe, maybe it's also the fact that that is what, like, canon per the wiki, perfect finish. But when I say it's Charlie at the end, it feels like more of a Charlie performance than a Mila performance at that last moment. But, I mean, obviously that's not intentional. It's I think the ambiguity works so well. And it just, it really sort of brings that theme full circle to the fact that Charlie has sort of reconciled it with her sort of sympathy for this character this very complicated character who is like kind of a psychopath. Like, I can't remember exactly how she says Charlie through that. I think psychopath is like one of the maladjusted. That's the one. Yeah. That's and it. I mean, that's not wrong. She did try to leave, steal Charlie's identity and leave her for dead. And even if I think the play walks a tricky line and making you still have sympathy for this character, even while also she is, has done a terrible thing. And that sort of forgiveness from Charlie End is so cathartic. And in the world where we don't know which one it is, I think it just makes it all more meaningful whichever sort of route is taken for either Charlie to give Mila this very sympathetic ending or for Mila to sort of give that sort of sympathetic grace for sort of and mourning over Charlie. I think the understanding they come to, it's, it's almost a little rushed. It kind of has to be because there's so much going on in this story. But the moment in sort of idea and an execution just works so well. Yeah, it does. And, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it, that's also the slightly, slightly where this place stumbles, I think, is that there's a lot of um, plot in the first three episodes, a lot of plot, um, not all of which is completely compelling. Um, but because so much of the plot has to, well, it has to wrap up the Charlie story, it has to wrap up the Six Doctor story, it has to wrap up the Viren story, it has to wrap up the virus story, this, and it has to tell its own story as well. It has to have its own plot. And that's a lot of ground for, for this play to try and cover. And I think it, it is stretched slightly thin in that sense. So um, a lot of the resolution of that does come about bit late in the fourth episode which yeah i think you're right slightly slightly rushed is is not an unfair uh judgment on it and particularly i think like the whole kind of amethyst virus and the whole threat to the whole universe all that business i don't really think it comes into focus that well it feels very abstract it's just some bad thing might happen if we don't stop it okay on this particular occasion it's a virus but like i don't know maybe there was a super weapon in the middle of the earth or maybe um i don't know something some other sort of bog standard here here's a threat to the universe thing i i i'm not massively convinced by the whole the whole virus threat thing well, I think that's almost the point of the story, though. The virus is such like a measly like background threat that's usually solved. And I think it's more about the monstrosity of these virins who are just like willing to throw humanity out, baby with the bathwater, just to get rid of to fix their mistake. And I think the way their inhumanity just comes out in these layers more and more. Not like they start friendly at all, but the realization that oh, they don't have any plans to cure and they, the mission sent the humans on as a cover to determine if they wanted to wipe out the humans. And, oh, the humans are at a mercy of a virus the virus created. And, oh, this virus is actually not lethal at all and they didn't have to do anything to start with. And their initial intervention only just caused the problems in the first place. And just this increasing levels of just inhumanity to these villains the whole thing is resolved just by the doctor offering a better solution, which is what the doctor does. 
it's it's almost like a great contrast to the doctor if the doctor just did not have any respect for human life that's who he'd be is the byron just finding any threat and just wiping out everything within a million light year radius just to fix it because he slash they can and yeah it is really i think interesting that they're sort of the villains but they're not doing it out of malice or evil it's just how they're and so this is left ambiguous too in a way i really like that's how they're programmed is it how they're bred is it how they're designed we have no idea who these things are just that they need to complete their mission and the problem isn't like like what they need to complete is so trivial it's like gobsmackingly like that's such a stomach churning moment when you learn that the virus isn't a problem at all for humans it's like a one billionth of a chance over the next thousands of thousands of years something bad might happen and then that and they're taking this extreme action and it just almost feels like more sort of fix their own mistake that may have been the doctor's mistake depending how you given the events of patient zero but that's less of the point the point is yeah it's it's a villain that's not mustache twirling or evil it's one that's just like simple. It's a villain because of laws. It's I choose the Indian terms a very lawful neutral villain, and how you navigate around that. Yeah, I do. I do like that, and I like the fact that they're not um, sort of irredeemably um, yeah. awful. You know, like particularly that like they're, they're prepared to give Charlie or is it Mila uh, the chance mm-hmm. to speak to the doctor at the end, and they're prepared to you know consider the idea that the doctor can come up with a solution which is better than just the extermination of the human race and that gives them a little bit more dimension than as you say if they were just like a mustache twirling we must do this kind of villain and it's it's nice that they're they, they have that scope i i understand what you're saying about the ambiguity of them when whether they're programmed or blah 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 we, we don't know about that to be honest i i think i'm a little less keen on that than you are i i think i would have liked a little bit more just a little bit more detail on them not much i i feel that they tend just slightly towards um sort of generic robot monsters and that voice isn't helping either um a kind of very sort of robotic almost crap working kind of voice um and it just i don't know i just like i would have liked one more detail sketched in like one extra little thing in the margin which gave us a like a focus or a, a real like why do they care about any of this that's like beyond the sort of vague abstraction of of you know oh well maybe the universe will be threatened but yeah not really by a virus so you know i don't know i just i want I, I could have done with one more one more detail i like the fa- i mean for all that i'm criticizing the voices actually i i like the fact that they're very um kind of flat in their delivery but not like a cyberman or a dalek you know they're they have this kind of like uh, you use lawful neutral and i think that's a kind of a very good way of describing those voices as well they're kind of neutral they're it's not the harsh grate of a dalek it's it's not the sort of clinical um sort of voice box of a, of a cyberman um and it, it, i do think that voice works for them in 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 this specific case but still yeah, I, I, I would have liked a little bit more detail, a little bit more meat in the bone there. Mm-hmm. I, I totally understand that. I just think the most chilling part, though, is when, like you said, the doctor offers a solution and they just accept it. And they're like, oh, there was a way to save everyone? All right, we'll take that. Like, they weren't even willing to consider <laughs> other options until someone presented one to them. And they're not, and they were immediately like, like the fact that they don't care one way or the other if humans live is for some reason so much more disturbing to me than a master who like wants to kill all humans or like a Daleks or anything like that. Just the complete lack of whether it doesn't matter if this entire species lives or dies. And we've already killed off billions of them just out of pure incompetence and rule following. It, that I think just works so well. And that's why I find them just so compelling. Yeah, that's fair enough. I do like I, I do like the moment where the doctor says uh, accuses them of um, you know having caused all this death and destruction and the death of billions and all the rest of it. And they basically just go, 
Welp, my bad. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a surprisingly unusual reaction for a, for an alien species. Oh, we, we didn't mean to. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry about that. My, my bad. Uh, that's 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 a, a pleasingly different reaction rather than <laughs> the usual speeches or justifications. But, uh, but yeah. And the, this whole thing about them trying to scan the entirety of humanity via a documentary... How are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How are we feeling about that? I mean, that is that just feels like another like idea. Like I said, Nicholas Briggs has a lot of ideas to his stories. Not all of them really rise to the surface, like crabs in a barrel. Some of them are just sort of left <laughs> on the bottom. And the documentary one, it's like it makes for a great cold open, and then let's just not think about it anymore. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a good way of putting it. I, I it's a really nice conceit Mm -hmm. but i don't know like that's i don't know that seems like an absurdly um i don't know what's the word it just seems absurd i think that's the word um yeah contrived an absurdly contrived plan on behalf of the virons in order to try and you know get all this kind of uh data that they need and it does kind of that does sort of lead us into sort of the human cast in this um who are all right? I don't yeah. feel like any of them like really distinguished themselves. I was I, when I was listening to it. This is this is a very unfair thing to do, and I don't recommend that anybody does it. But when I was listening to it, I kept hearing certain characters and thinking, "Oh, I wish it had been dot 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 who had played that." Like uh, like the role of David McAllister, who's played by J.J. Uh, Field, and he plays him fine. I don't want to sound like I'm particularly criticizing. He does like a good job with the role, but I kept listening to him. God, I really wish this was one of David Tennant's big form- big finished production uh, performances. You know, um, there was a lot of that kind of stuff, and I just. I don't know. <laughs> I just they're, they're they're fine. They're not they're not bad, but they're also. I don't think the story treats them as terribly important beyond kind of um, people who are either there to deliver exposition or, or like move a bit of the plot forward. Um, and because the story doesn't treat them um, with much more than that in terms of how seriously we're supposed to take them, I kind of don't either. Um, they're all good. I don't think there's anybody who really stinks. I don't think there's anybody who really uh, stands out. Um, but yeah they're i mean they're 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 basically they're in this yeah they exist to be very broad archetypes that are necessary (laughs) to move the story along and i think almost to the credit they don't try to be more than that like the angry man waving around a gun there to sort of escalate things is only there Mm -hmm. to wave around a gun escalate things we don't need to get into atherton's mind and (laughs) really figure out what makes him tick and that is fine there's other things to worry about in the it's a, it's a very solid two-hour runtime. It doesn't go over or under. I think it used, it's paced pretty well, all things considered. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're right. These characters are very generic. There's the one who trusts the Byrons. There's the one who doesn't trust the Byrons. There's the one caught in the middle. And yeah, it's they serve their function. And they don't great. They don't leave a mark. I think it's, it's a... I have a firmly neutral reaction to them. And I'm just sort of willing to overlook how sort of passive I am about them because there's enough other good stuff in the story. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's I think that's fair enough. We're not we're not meant to be. Uh, yeah. Yeah, bowled over by them, but I, I still. I don't know. I was gonna say I, I still kind of wish that they had a bit more juice oh. to them. I suppose that I I suppose that I do, but I'm not. Yeah, again, a lot of the stuff that um, takes place on Earth feels fairly. I don't want to use the word abstract again, but I it, it, mm-hmm. maybe remote is a better word. Oh my God, two billion people have been died, and yeah, and, and uh, you know half of humanity has gone feral, and 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 it only took uh, you know a decade for you know like a third of the population of the planet to be killed off, and oil refineries blew up, and nobody knows how to work technology, but we get to see sort of four or five sort of nice middle class people having sort of crises at each other. Um, I'm not sure that these characters are quite strong enough to convey, uh, you know, this this sort of total devastation of the planet that, that we're supposed to buy into um, because of the the, the Viren's mistake. And I think that's again, I think that's why I think that's where some of the mess of this story yeah. is. It desperately wants to tell a story about this kind of ravaged post post apocalyptic Earth, which has been 
you know, wiped out and brought to its knees by by sort of the the, the hubris and arrogance of, of uh, the Virons and their confidence and their abilities. But it doesn't really have enough going on to be able to pull that off in like a bit of a gun battle or, oh no, there's all these people who are dead. Exposition just isn't, isn't going to cut the mustard, unfortunately. And as long as we have those kind of slightly um, generic characters, the good one, the bad one, the trusting one, uh, you, you know, that's not, those, are, those character types are fine in a kind of functional piece, but they're not strong enough to be able to kind of carry the sort of narrative weight that, uh, you know, the destruction of the earth or the near destruction of humanity is, is meant to carry. Yeah, I, I can't help but agree, yes. Um, I, when I say I have a neutral reaction, though, that doesn't mean I can't think that OS could be better. It could definitely be better. And there are writers who can make every character work and feel like they're a whole part of the story and they have their role in our life and make every element work. And this is not one of the stories. This has a story with flaws, unfortunately. <laughs> they can't all be, I don't know, Jubilee. But um, yeah, I and I think that is a big problem I also have with the story is post-apocalyptic Earth settings in Doctor Who. I mean, part of it is, it's not a big part, especially as I grow less and less, more and more flippant about canon, let's say. Like, whatever, you can end the Earth a thousand times over if it makes for a good story. It's hap I complained about this in Terra Firma, which was another story where the Daleks wiped out all of the human race. And I think it happened like the parting of ways or something like that. And Last of the Time Lords, of course. So it's like twice in New Who within a couple seasons. It's it just keeps happening, wiping out humanity, and sometimes not even bringing it back, and it's frustrating. And not just from like the canner argument, which doesn't really affect me so much, but most just because of the scale argument. Like you said, like once you get to a level of atrocity that big, it just becomes numbers. It just becomes okay, and you're I'm stuck with a sort of conflicted feeling of I should feel much worse about this, given the huge scale of it. But it's such a massive loss that I can't even process it. So it's almost just background paint like setting. And the fact that it is just like exposition and it is just sort of wallpaper for the story, I think really sort of diminishes any effect it might have. Like I said, it is more chilling for the Virons to sort of have a sort of active role in the story of killing off the few thousand or however many humans left than it is to learn that billions have died previously. And I think that is just how a story like this works. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that like you said you, you, you said like this is the wallpaper for the story. And I think that's a I think that's a lovely way of putting it. That's a that's a very nice description. And you know, we've we've seen worse wallpaper than this. If you'll yeah. uh, if you'll allow me to stretch the analogy somewhat further, this is not kind of garish green and yellow flock wallpaper. This is something which is relatively neutral and and which you could you could plaster up in any old room. All right, I have I probably have stretched this a little bit further than it needs to be, but nevertheless, it's it is that that thing that it is there to, you know, give some color. It's there to to give some life to the story, and and we've had we've had worse than that. So you know, for all that we might lament that this isn't stronger or a little bit more sort of tightly focused um you know it, it's yeah we've, we've had worse and of course it's it's nick briggs you know who, who's yeah. going to edit the editor uh, <laughs> i think again I've, I've i've used this i've used this line before i know but you know who's yeah he needs somebody to edit his scripts and he's the editor so nobody's going to be editing his scripts you know um uh, that's 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 the that's the problem he he needs a, a stronger editor he needs somebody that can step in and go you know maybe don't do that and and that's that's what this needs it needs to be tightened up we need to get rid of a little bit of the the fat around the edges and, and either focus a little bit more on the character work or or sort of build a slightly cleaner and slightly more coherent plot but then when you're dealing with kind of like time bubbles and and, and reverse viruses and and god knows what else i mean it is I think that's the thing because the course of the this trilogy is um, I mean it's kind of it, it, it's sort of operatic in a way you know it's 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 deliberately going for big kind of outsized 
emotions and that's kind of appropriate you know charlie's charlie's leaving she's the first big finnish companion she's been around for donkey's years at this stage like seven or eight years something like that maybe longer and and you know it it, it stands to reason that they want to have this big kind of push for her kind of you know leaving the series so yeah that kind of sort of grandiose opera approach to storytelling um has i mean it certainly has its place within doctor who you know grand guignol is always part of doctor who but it has in this specific uh instance a, a real um and proper function and again when you have like colin baker's doctor you can't kind of get away from that slightly you know that those big emotions that kind of over the top stuff but the the you know again the performances are, are more than enough to anchor that I, I won't um reiterate what i've already said um but it is it is quite operatic it is trying for that kind of you know big grand sweep you know uh, and um and that's the thing if you go for a big sweep and you don't quite bring it off the the, the you know the visible not visible audible fall shorts are are that much more conspicuous but kind of bringing the conversation sort of towards those final scenes um with charlie on the way out that's what it had to get right it had to get that departure right and for all Charlie's contrived timeline and for all the the sixth doctor eighth doctor stuff and for all the divergent universe and I love you and all that stuff the one thing this play I think unambiguously gets right is Charlie's departure absolutely yes I know you brought up earlier that I mean it's implanted memories it's fake memories and that's like I've often used trope from Doctor Who and I obviously I think this is like something we already said, but again, it'd be great if it was better, if it was something more unique, something we couldn't think of. But, I don't know, backed into a corner, uh, I mean, it really is backing themselves in a corner with this whole storyline. As much good as we've gotten from it, as many great stories we've gotten pairing off the Sixth Doctor and Charlie, uh, it is feel like they have to sort of take a cheat to get out of this sort of situation. And what I think works is even if like I am also rolling my eyes when they do the fake memories canard, when they pull that out. At the same time, you have this fantastic moment at the end where the Sixth Doctor is sort of on the planet. Uh, I can't remember the name, but growl something. And lamenting this companion who he loves so much. And he just like ends with saying, it's Mila. And you're sort of struck by, oh, that was never, it's all fake. I mean, the adventures were real, and he has experiences still, but the person he went with, it's not quite Charlie, and it's not quite Charlie Mila, even. It's this fabricated person who he now will never forget, and who left an impact on him, even though she's not real. And it's it's this very weird mix of emotions, <laughs> where it's, a, it's very much a tragedy in a way. Um, kind of similar to what Moffat did with the 12th Doctor and Clara before undoing it. Uh, as great as that moment was, it also felt like kind of a punch uh, gone back in time and pulled. And But I, I love that moment when it happened in uh, the season 9 finale, uh, Hellbent. And I love this moment here, which doesn't pull that much, which is just like, yes, the Doctor has had something taken from him and it won't be restored. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things, I like, again, for all, okay, we've been clear about disliking um, mm -hmm. memory implants or whatever, I do admire the one thing about it. Now, whether this is intentional or not, I, I, I don't want to say, um, because you, you never quite know with Nick Briggs. Sometimes you get the impression that he's an incredibly... Um, smart guy who comes up with incredible ideas and sometimes you think he might have just thrown a dartboard at the uh, <laughs> thrown a dart at a board with a bunch of stuff in it and and, and um, hoped for the best but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt in this case uh, I promise I'll get right to what I'm actually supposed to be talking about um, which is to say we have kind of the whole you know altered memories thing now this play was released in 2009 in 2008, 
we had the whole controversy over uh, the Doctor sort of forcibly removing Donna's memories at the end of uh, Journey's End in the fourth, uh, the fourth season of the new show, which would have been very fresh in people's minds. It's still a debate which is going on today as to whether the Doctor did the right thing or not. Now, regardless of where you fall on that particular line with Donna, what is well handled with the kind of memory erasure or, or memory implants um, with the sixth doctor is that he gives consent and that sounds like a small thing but it makes a huge huge difference mm-hmm. to the way that that kind of narrative device functions because uh, particularly with a character like Donna who I you know we've said many times we love Catherine Tate we love Donna um, and there are arguments on, on both sides of the of the fence as to whether the tenth doctor did the right thing I think Broadly speaking, not that I give a figgin about fan consensus, but I broadly think the consensus in fan, in fandom is that he didn't do the right thing, that he he uh, you know explicitly went against her express will, etc., etc. But I don't think I don't think it's that clear cut. I don't think it's um, as simple as a, a a yes no answer, and I think it requires uh, some degree of uh, parsing out, some degree of nuance uh, to get into uh, all that with Donna. However, that isn't required with the Sixth Doctor in this story. The Sixth Doctor consents to having his memory altered, and he does it because Charlie has that final conversation with him, and she's smart enough, uh, and she's grown up enough. We even have a line where she refers to herself as a girl, stops, and then says woman. So we're forcibly reminded that this isn't the same person that we met back in Storm Morning. It's somebody who's grown up, somebody who's learned, and somebody who's very, very intelligent and understands the person that she's talking to. And so she forces the doctor, in a way, to make a particular judgment call. Um, But on the other hand, he does give his consent. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. I think that's such good writing. And it feels, because that time difference between Journey's End and Blue Forgotten Planet is, is let's say, it's a year, uh, it, it feels like a repudiation of what happened in Journey's End to Donna. And it's handled much, much better, I would have to say, because there's no doubt, because the Doctor gives consent to what's going to happen to him. And that does make that final scene where he remembers the adventures but with Mila, and yet it's not quite Mila, not quite Charlie. It does lend power to those scenes because the doctor has already come up with all his usual things maybe i could fool them or maybe i could you know uh pretend or maybe it won't stick or blah 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 blah. but we finally find out that it does um Mm -hmm. but it's so it's such an important detail i think that he gives consent for that and it for all that i don't like that as a plot device i think it probably was the only way they were going to get out of this kind of um, Charlie travelling with the Sixth Doctor thing that was always going to back them into some kind of corner um, and so I think if you're going to use that it's done as well as it's possible to do that yeah I I think that's a brilliant point and that is sort of adds to the tragedy of it that he asked for this uh, I, I think the one thing I'm sort of muddying that waters is Charlie did force his hand by revealing that he will die which is you know we, we know it's a mistake but it's worked for the dramatic point here um, and I think he's sort of in a difficult position where he wouldn't want that. Like Charlie makes a convincing argument and she's only able to make a convincing argument by revealing information that he did not want without his consent. So maybe, I don't know, maybe a little more complicated than that, but I do think you're right that overall yeah, having, yeah. The doctor, having the doctor elect to it and want it um, does still, it makes it go down much smoother than Donna and also does sort of add to the tragedy of it all. It just makes it that much more bittersweet and i yeah i just really think it's pretty much nailed it like and when i say when i talk about how it complicates things i think complicates things in a good way that charlie sort of got a little more aggressive with it like made the doctor force force the doctor's hand in that way i think it's a very interesting thing for charlie to do that because that shows that charlie is moving past the doctor like when she sort of says that there's no going back, she knows the doctor will want to do, and that will be to erase Charlie from his life. And sure, she'll be back in their life again, but later on, and that's, as far as she knows, his last days. And then I just one more point to that. I also really like Colin Baker's uh, delivery and how it's written of talking about how he would still 
or at least he says at first that he would still want to travel with Charlie, even knowing that when he sees her again, it will be, he'll be about to die. I think that is just so sweet in its way and so sad. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's a lovely performance. That everything in that those final scenes together mm-hmm. uh, between Charlie and the Doctor is just lovely. It's just so well acted, and it's just the way that uh, Colin Baker delivers that line. Um, oh, very well. And he sort of that's you know that's the moment where he he sort of consents to it. Um, but it's just delivered so well and so full of melancholy and sort of loss and regret, um, but also understanding. Um, it's just such a an amazing moment, and 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 uh, yeah, that whole all of that stuff is just. I mean, it's just great A material. Uh, it's really well produced as well. Um, this kind of quiet, sort of echoing uh, void. It's just just two actors at the absolute height of their abilities. You know, really laying into this kind of material for all it's worth, and it's just. It's really beautiful. I, I really that for all that for all that there's a lot of mess before it. Like like I said before, when when it needs to get it right, it mm-hmm. gets it right, and it's 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 really moving. It's it's a lovely, it's a lovely way for that to to come to an end. Yeah, and I love in that goodbye scene the contrast of Colin Baker's just very quiet, melancholy nature with India Fisher, a, an actor who we know can like give like rage and fury and um, just that sort of passion the most passionate rage and fury she's ever given, like just breaking down full on in such a spectacular way that it must have taken it out of her doing that goodbye scene. And just being, just all the sadness and rage that comes through, it's just incredible. I, we started with talking performances, I can't think of a better place to end. Like Colin Baker and India Fisher absolutely nail these goodbyes and these stories. And I think especially India Fisher, which is especially good because this is the last time we'll talk about her. And she rarely features in Big Finish beyond this. And I mean, it's understandable for story reasons, but what a shame because what a great, great actor. Yeah, absolutely. And and sort of, sort of zooming out slightly um, from, from just Blue Forgotten Planet. But I think one of the things that I um, so greatly admire about the sixth doctor and charlie stories is that that was a big swing you know to have that companion so identified with the eighth doctor so much a key kind of part of um big finish mythos and the way that big finish have chosen to uh construct a particular range the whole palm again range all of that it was a big swing to, to take that companion and then place her with, you know, the sixth doctor. And it worked. It just worked so well. And I think particularly for um, an actor like Colin Baker, who's a very domineering kind of presence, um, I don't necessarily know that a, a, a character like Charlie would be an obvious fit against that. Like when you have a character like, say, uh, I don't know, D.I. Menzies, who's just like strong, independent kind of woman. Uh, she's a police officer. She doesn't take, you know, any BS from anyone. And that's a, kind of, that's a strong character that can stand up to the Doctor. Same with... Um, but basically, actually, same with most of the companions that he ends up getting paired. They're non-TV companions, I should say. Um, but, you know, like Maggie Stables, like she can stand up to Colin Baker, you know. Uh, Evelyn is that. She's the perfect example of somebody who, who knows how to stand up to him and get around him. Um, yeah, I don't know that Charlie is necessarily an obvious fit, but it, it just works so well, there's a perfect kind of rapport and chemistry between them. And yeah, even even listening to it now, you know, a long time after these were, were released, it feels like an audacious choice. It feels like a choice which was really um, non-obvious and they went for it and it worked. And uh, I, I, again, for all the messiness of the plot in, in, in Blue Forgotten Planet, it, it's still taking big swings. And that's true of most of the stories within this range. All right, not every single one of them is, is going to be perfect. Um, but nevertheless, there's there's real ambition there, I think. And that's what I think made the, the whole 
So six Doctor Charlie arc work. Yeah, sure, memories fine. That's how we get out of it. Yeah, what else was it going to be? Um, that's that's the price we need to pay for um, for having these adventures. But if it is the price we need to pay, it's worth paying. And those final scenes are simply amazing. So there's no, you know, no complaints from me on, on that front. So yeah, as we sort of wave goodbye to Charlie, I, I do just want to, um, I just want to, yeah, reiterate how unlikely that pairing was, how big a swing it was to uh, to get it to land, and how, for the most part, they really made it work in a way that I don't think uh, Big Finish quite manage anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, we're gradually phasing out of, of, of doing Big Finish stories in, in, in general as, as we sort of move towards the end of this podcast. But um, it's the fact that the Big Finish can't really do things like this anymore. That's kind of why we're phasing out now. So it's, it's worth drawing attention to that as well. I can't think of any better way to say it. Yes, I mean, this... Sixth Doctor Charlie Perry. I really want to know why it's a Sixth Doctor and not the other Doctors, five or seven. But I think you may have just summed it best. It's just like, it just wound up being such a great lightning in a bottle chemistry between these two actors. And if it's such like a flyer of an idea of a story that, yeah, I just think it works so well. Yep, yep. I, I, I don't think I really have much to um, to add to that. So I think we can probably... Wrap up our conversation for Blue Forgotten Planet there as we say goodbye to Charlie and India Fisher for the last time and move on to recommendations. So uh, what have you got for us this week, Kev? All right. I am sure I've recommended this show before, but it's in the middle of its second season and just really hitting its stride now. It's a show called The Owl House, which is currently airing on the Disney Channel and easily found on Disney+. Plus. In fact, becoming even more easily available on Disney+. Plus. Uh, the first season only went up after the first season ended airing on TV, but the second season, they just finished airing their 10-episode half, first half of the season. And already five episodes are up there. Maybe even by the time this posts, there'll be another five completing that sort of half season up there already, on Disney+, Plus. that is. So they're really at least pushing to get people to watch this show and be sort of timely with it. And validly it's a fantastic show uh the premise is about a teenage girl called loose who winds up going through a portal to a magical realm filled with witches and other magical creatures unlike most stories of that very simple premise these ones are all demonic and <laughs> look like Hieronymus bosch paintings uh, i really recommend googling the show and its style i love it is so creepy and weird and not scary scary it's still a disney channel show but definitely not cuddly in a way you would normally expect uh what the show also has done over the course of this first season and a half is establish a lot of great characters uh the, the sort of other main character besides loose is uh ida sort of this witch who is on the run from the law kind of a scrappy uh what's the word, like rogue kind of figure who's outside of the law and is voiced by Wendy Malick in a really pitch-perfect performance. And then there's a little demon who hangs out with them called King, voiced by Alex Hirsch. And that name sounds familiar to you. He is the creator and frequent voice actor in the show Gravity Falls, which I also love. And Owl House, there's a lot of other creative DNA with that show beyond just that one figure. A lot of the same writers and directors and et cetera carried over. And it is, it carries all that tone over as well. So if you liked Gravity Falls, you'll definitely need to give the show a shot. Uh, what the show has done beyond those characters, there's just so many other ones just sort of filling up the margins. I love a show like this where you can take so many different people from like all walks of life and personalities and points of view and sort of throw them to a blender and pair them off and see how they work in this world. It's, it's such a rich cast with such a rich uh, vein of actors performing them. And then I think the other very notable thing is that this is a show that is very openly embracing LGBTQ themes, which is very uncharacteristic for Disney. And you almost wonder how it lasted this long. But very late in the first season, it becomes clear that the main character is bisexual. She has another, there's another character who trying to romance her, a female character. So you have a two-woman and a will-they-won't-they relationship throughout the show. 
I won't spoil how it ends up, but if you're if you do any digging on the show, you can pretty easily find the answer. And the fact that I am not railing against it probably gives an indication that things trend in a good direction. It's it's like nothing. It's just such a simple thing. But you know, I've never seen an animated show besides maybe Steven Universe really embrace things like that. And this doesn't such like a wholesome and loving way. Uh, just telling a queer story like this without being signposting itself and flagellating itself over how progressive it is. It doesn't need, need to, it just, it's right there on the page. Oh, and then the other interesting thing within that same sort of category is it's also the first character that uses they, them pronouns I've ever seen in A, a cartoon for kids, and A, anything made by Disney. And that made me really happy. That character has only been in two episodes so far, but yeah, it's, I can't believe a show has actually done that and is airing on the Disney Channel and on Disney+. Plus. I, it's probably why this is where the sort of the bad news comes in. The show has already been sort of given its end date of uh, 10 more episodes in the second season and then three double length episodes, a equivalent of six airing sometime next year or maybe the year after, depending on how long they draw it out. Uh, getting very used to three specials after, and then you're done orders recently from things I really like. But... Yeah, I mean, despite knowing that the end in sight and probably coming a little sooner than anyone would like, it really is a fantastic show. And, I mean, just the animation is fantastic. The lore is well thought through. Everything it does is really, is just effective. Oh, and it's very funny, too. It, it's still a comedy at its heart. And it's got a lot of very fun things at its soul. So if you like Gravity Falls or even reaching a little farther back, Avatar The Last Airbender those sort of like maybe appropriate for a younger set, but definitely still appealing to adults kind of cartoons. Definitely watch this. The Owl House, it is a brilliant show. I can't wait to see where this sort of end run of the show goes because I I love watching it every week. It is one of the highlights of this year in TV for me. Fantastic. That sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth checking out. Um, this week I'm going for something which is... Uh slightly different for me I'm, I'm going to recommend a poetry collection which is not not generally speaking part of my standard uh my standard repertoire uh, but i'm going to recommend a dear boy by an english poet uh called emily berry it's a, a very short uh collection of uh contemporary poems um and it was given to me by a very dear friend um who thought I would like it and could not have been more right. Uh, it's, it's absolutely, and I, again, I have to sort of uh, moderate my own language here to avoid an explicit rating, but it's absolutely long pause. Great. It's amazing. It was first published in 2013. Um, and it's a collection of poems, which are, it does sort of what all really good art does, which is it sort of pokes you and prods you and it makes you think. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's deeply uncomfortable. And sometimes it's, uh, challenging and sometimes it's it's a whole bunch of stuff and it's just this incredibly detailed um, collection of of works which sort of taken together have a sort of um, power it's very it's one of those kind of collections where um, the, the whole is very much more than some of its parts which is not to suggest that any of the parts are anything other than spectacular because they are all absolutely spectacular every single poem um, but sort of taken as a whole it kind of um, ascends to a whole new level and it's 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 kind of um, it's acidic and it's funny. It's also deeply personal and, and sometimes personal in a way that can yeah feel really uncomfortable. But um, that's why it's so good. It never, it, it's sort of personal without being autobiographical, if that makes sense. I don't know how much of the, 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 the what goes on in any of the poems uh, sort of accurately reflect her life, but it never feels like it's just here is a thing that happened to me. And a lot of the, a lot of the stances are kind of, um, very dry in terms of the humor, the sort of decadence, and there's um, the sort of absurdism, um, and just some some really amazing pieces in it. It's also it's, it's always difficult if you're going to recommend a poetry collection um, because as soon as you say the word poetry, like you can hear the defenses kind of slamming down. <laughs> People just shut off the video. Oh, you must read this poetry collection. But really, it's one of the great things about this piece, 
one of the things that made me absolutely love it is just how accessible it is. And it, it, so it's worth putting aside all those kind of... Um, <laughs> bloody poetry those kind of prejudices um to give it a go because it really is and that's that's i think why i think that's why it's such a successful piece it, it has like that kind of accessibility that lets you in and it's it, it's it's very short it's, it's a very very short collection so it's very easy to kind of get handle on and it, it, it i haven't read modern poetry in a, a, a very long time um to my shame and this feels like a perfect kind of gateway drug. It, it feels like the way back into a world that I, I used to know and fell out of and I'm sort of falling back into now. So I, I can't, um, can't really recommend it highly enough. But yeah, Dear Boy by, uh, by Emily Berry. Please, please go out and buy it and, and, and read it. She's a phenomenal writer um, who deserves every success. She's already very fated, um, but, but really I just, I, I just want to spread the love and spread the word because she's, she's brilliant. And this, this uh, dear boy is her debut work. And like for a debut work to be this good is just mesmerizing. It's, it's absurd how good this book is for somebody who's like, this is their first collection. Wow. It's just breathtaking. So, so that's my recommendation. Uh, dear boy by Emily Berry. Fantastic. I am looking to see if it's available by at the LA uh, library system now, and I will do that later, I guess. But a lot of books titled Dear Boy, it look, turns out, but Emily Berry, I'll keep that in mind. Um, right. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use. You can send in emails at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. I am on Twitter at KevKozer. And you can find more JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is jgmcquarry.scott. I did that in the wrong order. Also, my name is spelled K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. Please, like, I said that already. Am I now infected with the Byron's cure for the amethyst virus, to be specific? I must be. Yeah, I think you must be. All right. But well, that's all right. Because even 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 if you forget all about doing it, we'll still have had happy memories together regardless. For sure. Uh, please don't implant yourself with memories of a different podcast. You first, every person you go to the podcast <laughs> with. Um, yes, and I think that about does it. Uh, for Oh, yes. For plugs, I also want to mention that I am frequently on the podcast Total Massacre, hosted by Rowan Kaiser, talks about action movies. By now, we'll have been on talking about Total Recall, and I hopefully that went well. We'll find out. I record that tomorrow, but you can probably find it on your feed. Uh, if this one's up, you can probably find that one as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much. We got there at the end. We've done yeah. it. We've survived. We've survived the conclusion to the episode. Wonderful. Okay, good stuff. Right, lovely. Okay, well, um, next week, we are going to be beginning a new trilogy. So as we leave the Charlie trilogy behind, so we embrace the Klein trilogy. So we are going to be covering A Thousand Tiny Wings, and we are deeply, deeply excited to be able to get uh, to these Seventh Doctor stories. And as always... We hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.